This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to episode three of the Food Podcast. Today we're going to explore the true cost of flavor with journalist Mark Schatzker. He's the author of Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef, and now The Dorito Effect, the surprising new truth about food and flavor. Ingredients. High fructose corn syrup, water, cellulose gum, salt, natural and artificial flavor, caramel color, sorbic acid, and sodium benzoate. Preservatives. Sodium hexametaphosphate. That's what my three sisters and I were served every Saturday morning for my entire childhood. Aunt Jemima maple syrup. My mom was a homemade pancakes, half an orange, each at breakfast kind of mother, but she made approximately 28 pancakes every Saturday morning. I personally could polish off seven between episodes of Super Friends and the Jetsons. So she bought fake maple syrup to keep up with the demand, but also to appease her sugar-loving kids. After all, it was Saturday morning. And besides, it was the early 80s when high-fructose corn syrup was not part of the conversation. My mother, incidentally, kept a stash of real maple syrup for herself in the back of the fridge. My dad didn't eat pancakes. He was a cream-of-wheat man. Anyway, I'm an adult now. I buy real maple syrup. It tastes better. I get it from my brother-in-law's sugar shack. The liquid is gold, still ten times more than Aunt Jemima. But it's worth it, and I've made it a financial priority. I'm sure my mom knew her daughters would someday be sitting in the corner of the kitchen quietly hoarding our own stash. But not everyone prioritizes real flavor first. Grown-ups all over the world choose fake food for themselves all the time, and it's slowly killing them. One bottle of Aunt Jemima at a time. Okay, so let's start by saying, hi, Mark. Welcome to the Food Podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, you're a journalist, um, an investigative food journalist specifically. What led you in that direction? Um, I would say two things. A uh, a combination of hunger and curiosity. Um, Mm. I like eating and I like food, but I'm also curious where it comes from. Um, And I'm curious what always what's going on underneath the surface. So I think it was just those two things that brought me to where I am. And you obviously have kind of that investigative palette that goes with your curiosity. You know, I don't actually think that I do. I think it was necessary to develop that. I never thought of myself as kind of a gumshoe reporter who was going to, you know, find the deep throats and go through a company's trash to find the incriminating memos. (laughs) But if you want to figure out what's going on, sometimes you have to go to those places, not to say I ever went through anyone's trash. Um, so, in fact, I always thought it was something I was bad at because uh, in the sense that it's, um, you know, it's awkward to phone up a company and ask them what they perceive to be hostile questions. But it's actually not as hard. It's actually more awkward to think about it uh, than it is to do it. Hmm. I, I, I went through journalism school and that was the hardest part for me was the, just like sweatiness of calling, cold calling and talking about uncomfortable things sometimes. 
Yes. Yeah. But I, and perhaps it's different for different people, but I always find the prospect of it is actually much worse than actually doing it. Yeah. Um, it's like cleaning the kitchen. The idea of cleaning the kitchen is so much worse than actually cleaning the kitchen. Uh, so I, 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 the times I've done it, I've, I've quite enjoyed uh, because you learn a lot. And I think what's interesting to me is you learn that the people behind some of these uh, organizations, corporations or, you know, government bodies that we tend to think of as maybe immoral or evil are profoundly complex. And the world doesn't so easily break down into simple categories like that. Right. And the more information that you have, the better questions you can pose. That's right. Right. It's less nerve-wracking. Okay, so you're the author of the newly published Dorito Effect, but also Steak. That was your first book, um, and I read that a few years ago. And, uh, I, you know, I understand that it was born out of an assignment for Condé Nast Traveler, where you were asked to f- travel the world. This is such a dream job. The sole condition being you weren't allowed to fly. And you saw this in your words in the book as a well-funded sk- steak excursion. Yes. Yes, it was. I mean, it wasn't born just of that, but that that trip got me to some important steak-eating places. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, yeah. Why not? That's right. Why not? (laughs) And it also became this investigation into animal science and flavor science and human evolution and, you know, an incredible historical look into farming. Um, So when did you, when do you think you started looking at the, at the world through a food lens? I think I probably always have in the sense that I've always enjoyed food and been curious about it. But uh, the steak book arrived about five or six years after I started being interested in steak. Um, And I think, so I think I was always looking through that lens a little bit. I think the lens just got larger and larger and more encompassing as I got deeper into it. Mm, It really is. Um, you know, an incredible portal into so many different topics. It, it is. I mean, that's the interesting thing about food is that it's about it's about everything. It's about it's about ourselves as organisms. It's a it's about international trade. It's about technology. It's about nutrition. It's about social values. Um, it's about trends. Yeah, it's the never ending topic. Yeah, it's never ending, and um, it, it's also about children and curiosity because your second book the dorito effect has this incredible 3d cover with bits of doritos all over and i've caught two of my sons one trying to lick the cover and another scratching and sniffing (laughs) no um you know the dorito is is the perfect example of manufactured flavor which is really you know in my words you could probably better it but what the book is all about and the loss of pure flavor and the search for it as well so would you think it's this like primal response that a kid has to a dorito that made you choose it as as the the poster boy shall we say I think there's so many things about the dorito that make it the poster boy um the fact that it's got an invented name that that there was no such thing as Doritos before humans walked along. There were such things as apples and cows and so forth. But the Doritos are an entirely created and manufactured food. Um, they are universally adored. I don't know anyone... Well, you can find the odd person who doesn't like Doritos, but everyone pretty much loves Doritos. Um, but the most interesting thing about Doritos to me is that they kind of set the template for what all food or most food would become which is to say that the original Dorito was just a salted tortilla chip. 
and it flopped. Um, didn't sell well, nobody really got it, and it wasn't until Frito-Lay decided to flavor it, the first flavored Dorito tasted like taco. That's what made it the irresistible hit that it is. It was the flavorings. And it is such a great illustration of how powerful flavorings are as an inducement to eat. Uh, it took a chip that nobody wanted and made it something that everybody wanted. And I think the reason this is important is because in the sort of public conversation we've been having about nutrition, obesity, and health for the last 50 years, no one has ever talked about flavor. We've always been focused on carbs and calories and fat and salt. But when you look at the Dorito, it's those flavoring chemicals that that got people to start eating it like crazy, that, that essentially make them irresistible. And I think that is a very important story and something we need to be more aware of. Yeah. And I think when you look at, you know, what, what drives you, everyone deep down wants to be ha- uh, healthy. Um, and it's, 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 I think flavor is something that everyone also wants a part of. Absolutely. So easier to get your head around. Yeah, we're, no, we, I mean, it's silly though, because we all, on the kind of the operational day-to-day level, what are you having for dinner? We all want our food to be delicious. And yet when we talk about food in this abstract sense of what's good for us, no one ever talks about flavor. It's, it's, I need to, you know, goji berries are a superfood. I need to eat more protein. No one actually eats that way. Mm-hmm. We eat because eating is delicious. It's fun. It is pleasurable. And until we can, we have to understand how the pleasure aspects of eating work and how we've, we've tinkered with them before we're going to get a handle on what's gone wrong. Because you just got down to, you said, we need to eat goji berries, but it's the, it's the notion of need versus want. And I think that if, you know, if I want a goji berry, then I'm more likely to have it and so it's merging you're, you're totally right yeah. it's about want and the truth is we don't really have control over our wants <clears throat> and that's why so many diets fail because they're not very enjoyable to eat and very few of us have the willpower to eat boring unpleasant food very very few of us so if you understand the nature of desire with food which is essentially an expectation and craving for deliciousness if you start to look at it that way it's really easy to understand why people have gotten caught up in making such poor food decisions because essentially we've made all the wrong food delicious and we've sapped the deliciousness. We've leached it out of all the good food. In the beginning of the book, you define junk food you know, through the Oxford English Dictionary as you know, food that's bad for you, blah, blah, blah. But your particular definition is food that tastes like something it is not. And I think it's that notion of being tricked yes. that probably drives you and Absolutely, after reading yeah. it it drives me too yeah but it's funny i, I mean I, i'm turned on to that and and on some level outraged by it but i would say most people aren't what, one of the things i find interesting is the public enthusiasm frito lake keeps holding these contests for people to come up with flavors for chips and you find all these people on twitter going like oh my god have you tasted the cappuccino chip um, I think on some level they know these things aren't good for you, but they really revel in it and have fun with it. And I'm not going to deny it. I mean, it is fun. I see my kids trying things like this and loving it. Um, but we're not, I think we are culturally much more open to these contrivances than we were 20 years ago. And I think, doesn't Dorito have a bag now that's like Dorito roulette? Yeah, there's, there's roulette. There's, there's so many flavors co- coming and going. It was difficult for me to keep track of them as I wrote the book. Yeah, fair enough. Because every month I'd visit the website and it would be changed. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, dear. Well, that's for your your follow-up, I suppose. But I think that uh, part of your magic as a writer is that you're funny. And I'm reading your books and learning quietly, sneakily, kind of on the side. And it's all shrouded in uh, in story. And I have to say that... um, not every, not so, not very often do I, I read nonfiction out loud to my husband. Um, but this definitely came up when you were planning your big meal. I won't give any spoilers in the Dorito effect. <laughs> you have this great line. But now, like pubescent boys, we are fixated on tomato anatomy. How hard is the biggest one? Is it larger than your pinky? <laughs> and the spoiler alert really is that you do find out that heirloom tomatoes don't perform on demand. Um, you know, where does that that uh, that humor come from, and your ability to t- to tell a story? I don't know. I think it, it's funny because a lot of people told me they found the book funny, and I really did. I thought I, I kind of when I was done <laughs> writing it, I thought, oh, I think that one was too serious. So um, I'm glad. You know, I think it's important. I, I think very few topics do not benefit from a little bit of levity because life is filled with humor, and it's great to get it in there. Um, that said, it's funny that you raised that because someone, one of the people who reviewed the book, um, I think referred to that passage as being misogynist or something. Uh, oh, come on. Uh, well, you can't. You just have to be honest. I'm glad you liked it. And I, yeah, I loved it. Was, it. it was, I mean, when we, were doing, when we had that conversation over the phone, I was talking to a guy in California who was growing these tomatoes for me. There was this level of panic because there was this dinner happening that we were growing these tomatoes for and the tomatoes were not ripening and the conversations were hilarious because you're you're dwelling on anatomy and it just sounds funny. But also you managed to create suspense in that scene. I felt like I was watching an episode of 24, but you're talking about the growth of tomatoes. Oh god, they're still green. How are we going to how are we going to, you know, get that created that that how are we going to create that orange blush? You know, it, I was nervous for you, Mark. Yeah, it was. I have to say, it was an incredibly nerve-wracking time. I, I, I was constantly checking the weather in in this particular part of California to see if it was sunny, and I was willing these tomatoes to ripen. I mean, I was a, I was like a ball of anxiety, <laughs> which gave me a lot. I have to say, it gave me a newfound respect um, for farmers. Not that I did not respect farmers, but growing real food is challenging. One of the great things about making Doritos is that you don't have to worry about anything ripening on time and shelf life, you know, the, the raw materials are there and you put them together and you send it, you know, put in a package and send it to the store. The challenges of creating real food, of, of growing real things are profound. Mark Schatzker once described writers as anxiety-riddled catastrophists. His book, Steak, features a spreadsheet where he records his taste test findings. Stuff like smell, juiciness, tenderness, texture and feelings, tastes and flavors. It's so precise with a whiff of anxiety flowing through. But at the same time, his writing is full of passion. I have a friend, Gord Cooper, who is also passionate yet precise. I told him I was going to be talking to Mark Schatzker. Gord's eyes rolled back in his head. Steak, it turns out, is one of his favorite books, especially the chapter on Japan. Gord lived in Japan, he dreams in Japanese, and usually in those dreams, he's eating Japanese food. Here, Mark is in Japan, about to tuck into an A5 piece of beef. An A5 steak is the essentially the highest grade of steak you can get in Japan. It is the most marbled. It has the perfect color of white fat, the perfect color of red meat, 
and the highest level of marbling that can be measured. So that's that's number one. That is, it does not get better than A5 beef in Japan. Before I knew it, Gord was reaching for his Kindle and was reciting a favorite passage, one he too often reads to his wife in bed. The A5 steaks were at most three millimeters thick and cut into perfect rectangles the size of business cards. They looked like right-angled snowflakes. They were not Kobe beef, but A5 Saga, the loin, and A5 Kagoshima, the shoulder. And both brought to mind a gum I chewed in my youth called Freshen Up, which came in cube-shaped pieces that featured a gel center that detonated between two molars to the great thrill of its chewer. The burst of beefy deliciousness from the steak, however, was exponentially grander. And I had to restrain myself from verbal exclamation, which would have sent out a spray of beef fat, every drop of which I wanted to keep in my mouth. In terms of tenderness, the beef was about as tough as an overripe banana. It was not soggy or mushy, there was structure, but it did not put up a fight. I think thinness had something to do with it. The steaks were so thin, in fact, that they pushed the very definition of steak. The grill was hot enough to forge high-carbon steel. I couldn't so much as lean my head in Chata-san's direction while talking to him without getting scorched. But the culinary result, maximum maillard, was worth the risk of a first-degree burn. My chopsticks delivered glistening morsels of fatty crust onto my tongue, one after another, interrupted by sips of cold beer and exclamations like, son of a bitch and damn! Passion, precision, but no anxiety at all. I think the nice thing about experiences like that is they take you out of yourself. Instead of dwelling in your mind, um, you dwell on something else. And in that case, it was this magical slice of Japanese beef that I was eating. Um, and that it's riveting. And I, I think that's what we often search for in experiences are, are things that can draw us out of our own heads. I mean, great music does that. Great food does that. Uh, a great book or movie can do that. Um, and in that regard, it's very enjoyable. The thing that was challenging with that book is that um, you so want to live in the moment when you do something like that. And to actually record it, to take notes during it, is it, it takes away from the experience. So I kind of had to train myself. You know, the first bite, I'll just sit there and enjoy it. And then the second bite, I actually have to start, you know, recording it so I don't forget the, the, the contours of it. Do you apply that investigative slash passionate palate to everything that you eat? You know, paint a picture of what it's like for your wife, shall we say, when you're eating together. Tell the truth. Oh, you know, it can be challenging only in the sense that um, we both love food and restaurants can be tricky only because it's hard to find a restaurant where, you know, we're also not rich. Um, and very often... You know, I'm very interested and in love with great ingredients. I think good ingredients are the soul of good food, and you can't really make great food without great ingredients. Um, that, not all chefs agree with that, and not all customers or consumers are willing to pay for that. So I guess one of the things I find frustrating is that very often today you'll go to a restaurant that's, you know, trendy and cool, and it's got a great patio, and maybe is serving some interesting beers or has a, an interesting wine list. But they're buying, you know, let's say commodity chicken or commodity pork and just seasoning it, doing a lot, you know, maybe they brine it and then they smoke it and then they make some special sauce. The presentation is exquisite, but then you eat it and it's what I call Dorito food, which is to say it's ultimately bland, greasy, 
you can make it palatable by putting enough flavoring on it, but you're still on some level putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> and I don't want to judge those people who like it or, or all that, but it's just, I don't like it. So we often go to restaurants and sort of think, well, we probably could have eaten better at home. Right. And she's on on the same page. So that's yes. why it works. I think so. Yeah. I, that said, I try not to be a buzzkill. I mean, listen, you've got to enjoy yourself in life and I can't, I'm not going to weep every time I have a, a chicken drumette that doesn't meet my standard for chicken. <laughs> or no one, would, no one would invite you over. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think that it's clear that that probably began for you when you were in Texas writing the Texan chapter of your, your steak book, where you noticed that all the steaks were bathed in sauce. And not only that, when you walked into each restaurant, the hostess kind of bathed you in honey. Like, she called you honey, I think, or something like that. The restaurant, the hostess, the the server, it was all just quite sweet. Yeah, and I mean, that really is how, that's how our food system works, um, especially in North America. When you think of most restaurants, and there's a tremendous amount of franchise restaurants now, um, that's the way they work. They entice you with a concept. Maybe the concept is Texas or Australia um, or something like that some sort of superficial uh, theme. Um, you know, they put the stuff up on the wall that, that gives it a feel, but they're all kind of the same. And then they buy, you know, essentially commodity widgets and stick a sauce on them. I, I, and I don't think people realize that the amount of food that we eat that is actually manufactured in the sense that it feels like those chicken wings that you ordered or those chicken nuggets were cooked in the kitchen. But the truth is they were cooked in a factory they were re-thermalized in the kitchen, which is to say they were heated up, and they put a sauce on them. And so much of what we eat is like that. And uh, it's not, it's really not, it's not good for you, and it's just not that good. Well, it comes to mind your line, wet toilet paper. Wet yeah. toilet paper ba- bathed in sauce. We're a sauce nation. Yeah, we're a fl- yeah, we're a seat, exactly. And that's why, I mean, I guess, again, that's where the Dorito is the ultimate metaphor, because it is ultimately a vehicle that is bland and high calorie that is incentivized with flavorings. Um, and that's how an awful lot of our cuisine works now. And it's not, and also, also it's not just, you know, franchise restaurants. I see a, an awful lot of really cool kind of hip restaurants do that uh, where they serve, I guess what I would call high end junk food. I went to one a couple weeks ago where they served fried chicken. It was like intensely seasoned. There was a lot of MSG. So it was sort of like, bespoke KFC and then they had this really sweet plum sauce to dip it in and you know that isn't like with a cold beer like that does go down uh, I always find I don't feel that great after eating food like that but but more than anything it's just it's just sort of high-end fast food yeah yeah we got to pay attention yeah well you were talking about vehicle for food and and in your in your planning um, phase of that big meal that's featured in the Dorito effect, you were looking for the Mayan gold, that lovely little potato that you describe as um, it looks like an egg yolk with a suntan. So there are ingredients out there that I traditionally have thought of as vehicle for something else. But isn't it exciting when the vehicle itself can be incredible? Yes, and the, yeah, the Mayan gold is a potato that was bred in Scotland for a northern climate, but it, it is bred from an indigenous South American potato from Peru, intensely, intensely yellow, like way more 
deeply orange than a Yukon gold, almost the color of a, of a sweet potato. Um, and it, I can only describe it because I've never tasted one because you cannot get them in North America. Somebody owns the rights. I don't know who. I think it's a multinational. And they, I don't know why, are just not producing them, not licensing them. So you can't get this potato in North America, uh, which is very frustrating. But when you read the reports of the flavor, and this isn't just anecdotal reports, but they've done tests in universities. These tomatoes are, people love them. They taste delicious. So that's really interesting to me is the idea of something tasting good on its own versus not. So if you think of, sometimes we get those really lovely boiling potatoes. You can, you can have those potatoes with maybe just a pinch of sea salt or some olive oil. Uh, and they're great on their own versus a really bland baking potato that you need to cover in sour cream and bacon bits. These things are interesting. Now, I'm not going to say that baked potato, sour cream, and bacon bits doesn't taste good. But what's often really interesting to me is that when something is bland on its own, the way we make it palatable uh, usually is is kind of cheap. Like, like we just sort of dump calories on it. Mm-hmm. Same thing is true. Like when, you're, when your tomatoes taste like cardboard, you put ranch dressing on them. When your chicken tastes like cardboard, you put barbecue sauce on it. And I think this has a lot to do with why so many people are consuming so many so many more calories than they ought to because it's the only way we can make bland food taste good. But when you have food that has flavor on its own, when it, when it comes with flavor, there's so much less than you need to do with it. It's why Italian chefs often say, you know, cook any dish should have no more than three ingredients. That philosophy only works if your ingredients are amazing. Yeah. Um, and that food is simple and wonderful and healthy. But it's also why so many of us go to Italy and have these food epiphanies, and then we race back here and try to recreate the dish and are so profoundly disappointed because we're using different ingredients, and it does not taste the same here. We have to put a little sugar in our tomato sauce to mimic the sweetness of the sunshine. That's right. It's very frustrating. (laughs) Yes. Well, now I can't stop thinking about the Mayan gold. So um, I don't know if you listen to Mystery Show, the podcast, but I would like to get this mystery solved. How, who owns the Mayan gold? Yes. Yeah, that would be good. But even if we find out, let's say it's like Monsanto or something, um, even if we find that out, that doesn't mean they're going to give it up. True. But maybe they will. No, one of my favorite things about your tone of writing is that there's a sense of, there's a solution for this problem, and it's up to us to choose flavor through our buying patterns. And some would say that maybe that's elitist, and but I heard you on CBC talking on The Current, and you said, you know, we all spend money on a lot of stupid stuff, and let's refocus it towards our food choices. Yes. I, what I would like to do is get flavor into the food conversation. I, I think it's, it's almost incomprehensible to me that it has not been part of the conversation of what we should eat and how to get people to eat better. But I also would like... I think that the flavor conversation has been elitist. Um, I love, not that I've ever been, but restaurants like Chez Panisse, you know, Alice Waters Restaurant in, in California. Um, we've seen a trend here with very fine restaurants sourcing exquisite ingredients. These restaurants have proven that we can get flavor into food, but it's very expensive. What I would like to see is that philosophy extended down the food chain so that we can go to supermarkets and buy tomatoes that taste like tomatoes and chicken that tastes like chicken. I think it's important that we do this because it's it's socially, it's not really acceptable that only rich people get to eat delicious, healthy food. Um, I think there's a moral imperative to make food better for everybody. So I was sort of surprised because 
I got this criticism both from sort of the left and the right. Even the Washington or the, the Wall Street Journal said, "Oh, but the food he's talking about is more expensive." It's not ridiculously more expensive. It's a little bit more expensive, but I don't see why that should be a barrier to people taking part of it. In it, I mean, healthcare is expensive. Uh, in this country, we found a way to provide healthcare to people that can't afford it. You know, just because something's expensive doesn't mean you walk away from it. And we don't because iPhones are expensive. iPhones are expensive. Clothes are expensive. An awful lot of us spend money on things that perhaps. Uh, you know, a bit of that income would be diverted elsewhere. I think it's important that we don't expect our food to be the absolute cheapest possible. I have met people that drive beautiful imported European sports cars and buy the cheapest chicken and the cheapest tomatoes they can buy, and and this is just puzzling to me because many other cultures don't look at food that way. I was just going to say that. You know, most most journalists or reporters, shall we say, have this sort of arm's length detachment from their subject. But you, you are so intimately connected to your subject; it's it's inspiring. I think you have to be to really get inside it. Um, it's objectivity is important, but um, intimacy is also important. Yeah, and it really shines through. Well, thank you. Mark, thanks so much. It has been an honor to chat with you about steak and the Dorito effect. Well, it's been terrific. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much. Until next time. Great. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. The challenges of growing real food are profound. Aunt Jemima doesn't care about maple trees and Doritos are cheap because they don't have to think at all about the weather. But our food choices have the power to bring real flavor back into our diets. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have some fresh tomatoes tonight from my aunt's garden. You can find more about Mark at markshatzker.com, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-A-T-Z-K-E-R.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Food Podcast. Like us on our The Food Podcast Facebook page. And please send feedback and any show suggestions you have to thefoodpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.